Welcome to Wednesday night community. Uh, if you're normal part with us, we are in the middle of a of a series. Um, if you're new to our community, um, meet every Wednesday night here. Um, please feel free to be a part of this community. We, we would love for uh, you to be a part of this. And um, we it's kind of a fairly um, Easy going night. We've got snacks in the back, as we always say. So please always feel free to get up and go grab coffee or water or snack or something. We just have some great people, which, by the way, thank you for, for um, our team who sets all this up and they make the coffee and they prepare everything. So I, I'm really, really grateful for that. I know you guys are, too. So thank you to them. Um, Real quickly, I want to make a, a comment. I made a comment about this last week, but I've realized people aren't always here every single week, so I thought I'd say it for a couple of weeks. There's a really, really great new study Bible out by Zondervan. just came out this last month, and it's, it's fabulous. It's, a, it's the best study Bible that I know of. Um, it's completely rebuilt up um, from the bottom up. D.A. Carson is the general editor, wonderful scholar, a lot of other great, great um, scholars who who uh, rebuilt all these notes. So there's like verse-by-verse notes. I think there's like 20,000 all-new notes, verse-by-verse notes in this, and a lot of good introductions to books and that sort of thing. So I would really encourage you to pick it up. And as I said last week, the only kind of caveat is get the large print because the regular, like, I can't even hardly read the regular size print. It's, abs- it's not because I'm 40. It's absurdly small. I asked around just to make sure. Um, get that. And, and also... It, it's like five pounds. It's massive. And so it does come with a digital version, which is really, really nice, a free digital version. So please, please take a look at that. Um, we're, we're in a series looking at the frequently asked questions of faith that, that we so often encounter. And we've talked about um, a large variety of different ones. Tonight we're going to be talking about this idea of literalism. Literalism, and I want to kind of try to orient us and explain kind of where we're going here. Um, oh, actually, I do need to make a correction. My, my my daughter corrected me a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, I was I was talking about a Korean word, and I was trying to say "anyang haseo," which is hello, and I said I said "orange" in Spanish. And afterwards, my daughter said, why did you say orange in Spanish? And I said, I didn't say orange in Spanish. She said, you said orange. So I went back and listened, and I said orange in Spanish. So that, that, that was incorrect. So I needed to make that, make that correction here before we go. Um, let, me, let me try to introduce us to this idea of literalism. Uh, a lot of people will say, look, it's fine to kind of base some of your principles and your beliefs on the Bible. That's okay. But, but you, you can't believe that it's all literally true. Now, literally, I don't mean interpretation i don't mean like well is this figurative or literal right because when we look at literature we have to understand figurative meaning versus literal meaning that's not what i mean what i mean is maybe best explained by this illustration herman melville back in the 1800s this is the author of moby dick he wrote he wrote another a novel he's an american novelist and in this novel it's called redburn redburn is a young man who lives here in america and his father is going to send him on his first voyage at sea and so Redburn gets on this ship, and before he goes, he's going over to England. He's going to go to Liverpool. Before he goes, his father gives him a map of Liverpool, and it's got significant uh, landmarks on it, and this person lives in this area, and this is where these people are. And, and he gets on this boat, and of course the majority of the story is these horrible experiences at sea getting across. But when he gets over there, he pulls out the map, and he starts trying to navigate 
his way around. And what he realizes is the map is hideously outdated. Like landmarks have been moved. People aren't living there anymore. Street names have changed. And what he realizes is this is not a good map to help me navigate Liverpool. So he just has to kind of throw it. He has to pitch it. And many people have said, believe that, that Melville, this was kind of maybe a little jab of his at the religious establishment. This was his attempt to say, this is kind of like your life with scripture. You think that scripture will help you navigate life, that, that, that it will help you see truth and reality, but it's outdated. You know, there might be some good things in there, but you, you can't trust it as a map for life overall. You can't literally say this is a map of life. Okay, so that's what we're getting at when we say this idea of literalism. You know, the question is, how can you say the Bible is literally the inspired word of God, that it's literally true, that that it's fully authoritative? How can you do that? Um, Open your Bibles if you have them. We're going to look at Luke chapter one. And then if you want to put your fingers in chapter 24, I'm just going to read the first couple of verses of Luke chapter one. But the most. The larger section that I'm going to be reading that we're going to be looking at tonight is in chapter 24. So, or if you have your um, smartphone with you, you can just slide on over there. So Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Luke writes this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty the things you have been taught. And in chapter 24, verse 13, this is after the, after the death, burial, resurrection of, of Christ, and he appears to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says, now, that same day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. The crucifixion, they still think Jesus is in the tomb. Their hopes and dreams have been dashed. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, Jesus asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets... 
he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? What I want to do tonight, I want to suggest that, that we can trust Scripture. We can trust the accounts of Scripture. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the Gospel accounts tonight for three different ways. And I get this, I borrow heavily for these, these three different ideas. Um, Tim Keller, I've been talking about him a lot in this series, sort of launching off of a book of his called The Reason for God. And many of these topics we're kind of grabbing from different lists that people have. Some of them have been his. And, and he, he, he gives these three reasons. I think they're very well stated as to why we can trust um, the Bible. First thing, um, okay, now this is the claim. The claim is commonly stated, and this is in your outline, you've got a couple uh, markers there if you want to fill in any notes. The claim, it's that the four gospel accounts can't really be trusted to give us uh, valid, trustworthy information about Jesus. Who really knows who the real Jesus was? Because, see, what, what we have in the Gospels is really just what the early church leaders, the second generation of leaders, maybe 50 years later, maybe 70 years later, kind of what they concocted in order to kind of support their own power structure, in, in order to uh, move their own movement along. Okay? It's, a, it's about consolidating power is the claim that's oftentimes made about this. And so these early church leaders are suppressing evidence of the man Jesus, and they kind of create a, a divine Jesus in order, you know, your leader's human, well, ours is God. See, we're better than you, right? This is kind of what's going on here. Well, let me give you three reasons why I don't think this is the case, and three good reasons why I think we can trust the texts of the New Testament. And the first one is that the New Testament accounts of Jesus, as stated up here, the Gospels, and we're talking about the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those Gospel accounts, they're too early to be legendary. Luke 1, he starts by writing this. I have worked hard to draw up an accurate account of what happened. And he says, and I checked with all the eyewitnesses. Okay, that's, it. that's how he starts his document. What he's saying here is, it's, it's been 30 to 40 years, okay, that Luke's writing this after the actual events. But he's saying, but I went to the eyewitnesses. You can go ask them. I'm getting first-hand information. He's doing the work of a good investigative journalist or reporter. Or we could even look at Paul. Paul the Apostle, he wrote even closer to the events of Jesus. Paul wrote within like 15 to 20 years of the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, if you, if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, um, Paul says this. He says, Jesus appeared to many people, and he said at one time there were even 500 people, all in one location, who he appeared to all at once. What he's saying is you can, go, you can go ask him. 500 people. There's enough people around that this was a public occurrence. It wasn't something that happened secretly in some corner just to us or just many people saw this event. 
Interestingly enough, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul also quotes the earliest creed that we've ever found about Christianity. 1 Corinthians 3, he quotes the earliest creed, and we know it because his, his, his language changes. And he uses technical rabbinic Jewish language, but he says, what I received I passed on as of first importance. And what we've discovered is that's technical Jewish language for saying, this is, this is sacred history that I'm simply passing on that I received. Well, based on when we know he was around, when he could have been given that, Scholars date this creed to within three to eight years of the crucifixion. So very early information that these early Christians believed, whether or not he was divine, but these early Christians worshipped Jesus as divine. They really believed that he had been raised from the dead. Um, There are a lot of popular... uh, expressions of this idea maybe uh some of you guys read the book i I read the book when it came out the da vinci code you remember that or you might have seen the movie and in the book this is a number of years ago now in the book and in the movie uh it, it it depicts constantine emperor constantine in about 325 a.d so three you know the fourth century 325 a.d it depicts him as as sort of creating this divine Jesus, that he just sort of declares Jesus divine or that maybe there was a vote um, on him being divine or not. But really, up until that point, he was just sort of a man uh, who was a good teacher, but no one really thought he was divine. It was a later, later invention, an idea. Of course, the problem with that is even the, the non-Christian ancient sources very much go against it. Let me give you some examples. Um, some ancient... Non-Christian sources, Tacitus, Tacitus is is considered to be the greatest Roman historian Um, in his his book, The Annals, uh, written in about 115 A.D. He speaks, he references these Christians. Suetonius, also a Roman historian, he was the uh, chief secretary of the emperor um, Hadrian. Uh, who ruled in 117. So this, we're talking 200 years before Constantine. Pliny the Younger, let me give you a quote, a statement that he made. Pliny the Younger is a Roman governor. Um, he's, he's, he's writing in about 112 AD. Okay? He's, um, he's in Bithynia, and basically Christianity is illegal. So, so Pliny, as a governor, he is, any Christians who are turned over to him, he, he investigates. Uh, he tortures to get information. What are you guys doing? What are your attempts? What are you believing? Because they weren't worshiping the Roman gods and that sort of thing. So he tortures them. He gives them three opportunities to say, no, I'm not a follower of Jesus. uh, And then he kills them. Well, Pliny wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan about saying, this is what I found out. I've investigated these Christians. I've tortured them. I've squeezed them in for, for information. And this is what he says. They, the Christians, now he's writing in about 112 They, the Christians, are in the habit of meeting on a certain day, before it was light, where they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as God, bound themselves by solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind this is the guy who had tortured christians to get information what are you guys doing in 112 and he said every christian i ever came across this is what they believe in at the top of the list they worship this jesus as though he's god or we could go to the jewish talmud the jewish talmud 
are, are, are uh, oral traditions that, that, that were later written down and recorded. So these are, these are not f- friendly to the Christian movement. And the Talmud, these sources which date from about 70 AD when the temple's destroyed to about 200, we, we read a very interesting, significant statement about this Jesus in Sanhedrin 43a. We read this. On the eve of Passover, Yeshu, which is Jesus, was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery. Interesting. There's an, an alley, or a, a, a reference to his miraculous works. And enticed Israel to apostasy, which is mean turning away from God, the idea of worshiping someone else. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. And he said, but since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of Passover. Um, last one here, Lucian, who was a Greek uh, satirist. He's writing in the, in, the first, in, the, in the second century, in the 100s. He writes some very disparaging comments about Jesus and about Christians. And he writes this, he says, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguishing personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. Every indication that we have from anywhere in history, whether it's sacred history, scripture, or even outside of it, says the earliest Christians worshipped this guy, Jesus, as though he were divine. It simply doesn't do to just say, oh, it was a later invention. So we can trust that they're at least accurate accounts of what they believed to be true about Jesus. Um, if you want to see some more information about this, I, I, I listed some uh, suggested resources in your, uh, in your bulletin. And there's one by Gary Habermas, uh, The Historical Jesus. That's a great, great resource. And there's a couple other ones there as well. So here's kind of the big idea, is that this, this claim... Made by places like the Da Vinci Code and others that, you know, Constantine just declared Jesus divine or or some leaders later made up the idea um, and then suppressed the truth about him being a man. It just doesn't fit the facts. Uh, if you want to be really cynical about Constantine, you could say this. You could say, well, Christianity had already kind of won the culture. And so he just picked the group that was winning because he wanted to back a winner. I mean, that's at the most you could say about that. Um, second thing, second reason why I think we can trust the New Testament about who, who this Jesus was is that the New Testament accounts are too counterproductive to be legends. Um, historians call this the criteria of uh, embarrassment. See, the theory that the Bible doesn't really tell you what happened. Instead, in the Gospels, you only have what the church leaders wanted you to believe or happen because, again, Jesus helps them with their movement, consolidate their power and all that sort of thing. The problem is, think about this. If, if I'm an early church leader, okay, and I'm living 50 years or so after, after Jesus, and, and, and I'm concocting these stories okay, to kind of help my movement, do I, say, do I write this, Luke 24 that we read, Luke 24 verse 22, about the Emmaus disciples. It says, in addition, some of our women... There's the key word. Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find the body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Now, here's, here, here's why this is so absurd. If you're, if, you're, if you're making this story up, women's testimony was worthless in this day and age. 
A woman couldn't even go into a court of law. Her, her testimony was not valid. She couldn't even enter a court of law, in a Jewish court of law. And if, if five women made one claim and one man came up and contradicted it, they would believe the man. A woman's testimony was not valid. So he, here's the thing. And yet Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them, all of them, not just what say women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb. If you're trying to build your movement, you would surely have men finding the empty tomb. And the only explanation that they all say women did it is because to their great embarrassment, women were the first discoverers of the empty tomb. So the, um, also another thing uh, is, think about this. Uh, the, the, the leaders of the early church... They, they are second generation followers to the apostles, to Peter, to John, to James, and all these sorts. And in fact, they would oftentimes say, we have records, they'd say, I was a student of Peter, or I was a student of, of John, right? We have even an account in the, in the, in the New Testament where Paul kind of has to step in and say, you guys are bragging too much on like, oh, I was baptized by Paul, as I was baptized by Paul. But this was a big deal. Who you followed, who you were a student of, kind of gave you credibility in a lot of ways. So here's the problem. If I'm one of those people who is always boasting about, I was a student of Peter, I was a, I was a student of John, then, then why would, when I write the gospel on every page, the apostles look like selfish, arrogant, cowardly fools, right? I mean, none of them look good. They're slow of heart. They don't understand things. You know, uh, Jesus calls Peter Satan at one point. I, I mean, it's just, it, these are not the sharpest people in the world. They're, they're not lifted up as these great people of faith. They're cowardly. Surely you would not do that. Again, it doesn't help you in any way. Again, the only explanation for these elements being in the text is that they actually happened. They were reporting true ideas that really happened, even to their embarrassment. Third thing, third reason why you and I can trust the, the Gospels historically is that the accounts are too detailed in their form. Uh, in, the seventh, in the 18th century, the 1700s, in the West, there, there was a genre of literature that arose for the very first time in world history. And it was called the novel or the short story. Now, here's, here's why the novel or short story is so different than all other writings and all the histories that we have of any information of any cultures in their writing is that um, novels are realistic fiction. So current novels are totally different than, than ancient myths, stories, epics. They're just, they're just categorically different. In ancient times, a legend or an epic or myth, it, it wasn't like that. If you go to any Greek or Roman myth or story, it never starts like this. I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I've checked with eyewitnesses, and so I've decided to write an account. They never start like that. Ever, ever, ever. C.S. Lewis, who, who was an atheist for many years of his life, he was an expert in classical literature. That, that, that was his area of expertise. And this was one of the pieces, because he had always assumed, oh, these are, these are fables, these are myths, because, and he knew very well the world of myth. That's, that's what he taught at Oxford, and then at Cambridge were the classics. And he just assumed they were, and then he went back and he actually, upon a challenge, well, read these gospel accounts. Years later, this is what he wrote. He said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. 
I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is historical reportage, and it actually was being reported, or else some unknown ancient writer, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. That's, he was a professor. That's sort of like an arrogant jab there. You, know, you just don't even know what you're talking about. Um, Lewis is saying ancient fiction, it's completely different from modern fiction. It reads differently. So th this can't also just be some sort of fictitious account as it's being brought up. See, modern fiction is realistic. It, it contains details and, and dialogue that, that really don't help the purpose of the story. It's just eyewitness accounts. If you ever listen to someone who's re recounting, they, they will remember detailed things that aren't really important for the big thing, but it's something that was consequential to them, something that, that they just saw. And as you read the Gospels, Mark chapter 4, we're told that Jesus is on a boat and he's sleeping, but he's on the stern and, and he, has a, he has a pillow underneath his head. Just a little detail there. John 21, we're told that, that Peter, he's, he's 100 yards out from the sea, from the shore rather, when he sees Jesus and he jumps out of the boat. And then a parenthetical statement says, oh, in that day they caught 153 fish. Jesus in John chapter 8, when he's with the woman caught in adultery, he sits down and he starts doodling in the sand as he's listening to the people talk. It has nothing to do with the story. None of these have anything to do with the purpose of the story. Why are they there? Because it's historical reportage. It simply bears the internal marks of, of authentic eyewitness accounts. So we can trust the Bible historically. Let me, let me go to the next one. We can trust the Bible culturally. Um, there's, a, there's a young lady, a friend of mine, uh, not, not walking with Jesus, not a believer. She really doesn't have any problems with the historicity. She says, yeah, I, I recognize that these guys... People wrote these books, and, and it's accurate to what they believed. Her biggest hang-up is this idea that the Bible is offensive at parts to me. Um, there are parts of the Bible that are kind of primitive, culturally regressive, um, and that's awful, so let's just kind of drop the Bible overall. I just I can't, I can't get over that. Let, let me offer you three suggestions, three things to do, because I think all of us do this. All of us find things in Scripture that we go, ah, I don't. That's I kind of have a problem with that. Three things to do that allow you to keep reading, to keep learning as you're wrestling with these questions. Okay, the first one is this. Please consider the possibility that it might not teach what you think it teaches. Um, this is exactly what Jesus does to the Emmaus disciples here um, in Luke 24. They're all upset. Remember, they said we had hoped that this was going to happen, but it didn't. So obviously this this isn't true and this can't and this can't be the case. And Jesus says, you don't understand what the Bible teaches. You're not understanding the Bible accurately. Um, let me give you an example for this. If you go back and read the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, um, as you read through it, the characters, you know, the great heroes of faith. Who are the great heroes of faith in Genesis? You've got like Abraham, right? Isaac, Jacob. I mean, there's, these are the great heroes of faith. And, and, and yet, look at how they treat women, right? The practice of polygamy is, I, I mean, they all do it. They all practice this idea of polygamy. Um, they engage in polygamy, which absolutely 
puts the man in the power seat. All the patriarchal institutions are there. So how do you handle that? Uh, there was a there was an uh, author named Robert Alter, Jewish scholar. Um, he wrote a book a few years ago called The Art of Biblical Narrative. He's a professor at Berkeley. And he says that there are two institutions that were universal in the ancient world. Everywhere you went to one was polygamy and one was primogenitor. Okay, polygamy, the idea that one man marries many, many women. And then primogenitor is the idea that it's the oldest son who gets everything. He's put into a, a position of power. Everyone else has to serve him. And he's, he's, he, he lords it over everyone else. He says these, these are two universal, universal institutions in the ancient world. And then he says, now go back and read the book of Genesis. And he says, what you see is that in every generation, polygamy wreaks havoc. There's, there's emotional fallout, there's spiritual fallout, there's uh, financial fallout, there's... I mean, every, everything you could imagine, it, 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 it wreaks havoc. He says, and then, and then see what, the, what God does about primogenitor, this idea of the oldest son. What does God always consistently do in almost every generation? He chooses the younger son, right? He chooses Abel, not Cain. He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, not Esau. See, what Genesis is doing is it's subverting. It's not supporting these institutions. It's subverting them. God is going against the grain of the culture that is well entrenched, well established. And he's overturning these ancient patriarchal institutions at every turn in the book. And see, if you go back and you read it and you realize that, all of a sudden it's not, it's not as offensive. You go, man, God's engaging with a culture that's rampantly screwed up. And messed up and broken. And God is overturning it. He's subverting it slowly here. Let me give you another thing to do. Another reason why I think we can trust the Bible culturally. Please consider when, when you find a difficult passage in Scripture. The possibility that you're misunderstanding the Bible because of your own cultural blinders. One reason the Emmaus disciples misunderstood is because of their cultural blinders that they had. They didn't understand that Jesus had to die because they didn't understand his activity being for the whole world. It actually says it in verse 21. They said, we were waiting for the redemption of Israel. They, they had a cultural focus on it, it's about Israel. Therefore, it must be overturning the Romans. It must be pushing them back. And he says, no, 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 it's a universal thing. Their cultural blinders kept them from seeing, oh, he had to do this in any way. And so they misread the Old Testament prophecies because of their cultural blinders. Um, let me give you an example of one that I think affects us, of reading the Bible with with cultural blinders and what it's teaching slavery people say the bible supports slavery it, it it holds slavery up well that's we know that's wrong so surely we can't trust the bible it can't be an absolute rule of faith because it 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 supports a horrible institution which we all know is bad and we know is awful and yet it it supports slavery um just look at the passages you know where paul says in the new testament slaves obey your masters that seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Well, here's the problem. 
If you go to the one book of the New Testament where Paul addresses both the, the master and, and the slave, uh, Philemon, the book of Philemon, he talks about Philemon the master and Onesimus the slave. What you begin to see is that the way this relationship works between the two of them, it's more like indentured servitude. It's a lot more like that. It's not what we think of when we hear the word slavery, right? What do you think of when you hear the word slavery? You think of 16th, 17th, 18th century race-based African slavery, right? New world slavery. Um, Murray Harris is a historian. He wrote a, a, a book a few years back about the differences between new world slavery and then ancient first century Greek, Greco-Roman slavery. And he made some of these points. He said, so when Paul talks about slavery, first century Greco-Roman world, this is his concept. He says, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race or speech. In many cases, slaves were more educated than their owners and many times held high managerial positions. From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore often procured enough personal capital to buy themselves out of slavery. Uh, very few persons, number four, were slaves for life in the first century. Many expected to be emancipated in about 10 years or in their late 30s at the very latest. Now contrast that to new world slavery. What you and I, because of our cultural blinders, what we think of. We think of 17th, 18th, 19th century slavery. We think of race-based slavery. The default mode is slaves for life. And the African slave trade both began by kidnapping and it was resourced. It, it continued by kidnapping, with, which both the Old Testament and New Testament roundly condemn. 1 Timothy 1.9, Paul condemns slavery. Deuteronomy 24.7, I'm sorry, condemns kidnapping. Deuteronomy 24.7 condemns kidnapping so that's why when when paul faced slavery in the first century world he said yeah if you can get free get out of it but he didn't start a campaign to end it but when followers of christ in the 17th 18th and 19th century when they faced slavery they absolutely tried for the full abolition of it because they realized it could not square with scripture now, a lot of people say, well, wait, 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 wait. Didn't, didn't a lot of people in the South use these verses to say, oh, you know, slaves obey your masters. They use them to keep slaves subject to them. Yeah, those were their own cultural blinders. They misunderstood the text. That's, they, they perverted the text. They twisted it in that way. So please consider the possibility when you come across something that seems culturally regressive or I, I can't wrap my mind around this. Please consider the idea that when you're reading something that, that seems offensive, it, it may be your own cultural bias, your own cultural blinders. And then number three, is that number? Oh, it's number, well, it's supposed to be number three, it says two. Number three, please consider that you may have a problem with the passage because of the unexamined assumption that your cultural moment is superior to all other cultural moments, that you've arrived culturally, <laughs> that, that you're able to assess and judge things because you're not in transition like all other people at all other times, but you've sort of arrived at the cultural moment and you have this objective place to, to um, view everything. See, a lot of people read the Bible and they say, oh, that's so offensive and you know, culturally regressive. But here's the thing. Other cultures in our world right now aren't bothered by the things you're bothered by. 
and and they're bothered by things that you aren't bothered by culturally. Um, an example, think think of the topic of sexuality, sex. Okay, Western individualistic guilt based culture. Um, we read what the Bible says about about sex, and we go, oh, that's so regressive. That's so you know, uh, you know, we don't like that idea. We read what it says about forgiveness. You should forgive your enemies. Forgive you know seventy times seven. If so, you know, turn the other cheek. We go, oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Right? Take the Bible to the Middle East. Okay. Read, they read what the Bible says about sex. They like it. It's probably not strict enough, but they like it. You, you say, forgive your enemy. Turn your cheek and somebody slaps you. They go, are you kidding? That would destroy you. Why? Because they're not an individual Western society. They're an honor-shame culture. You would never do that. You would lose honor. You would lose establishment. No one, ever, no one would do that. That's absurd. See, the things that bother you culturally are not the same things that bother other cultures. But again, we often tend to assume, well, but my cultural sensibilities are the accurate ones. Right? We kind of naturally assume that in a lot of ways. So if you're offended by something in the Bible, here's the question. Why should your cultural sensitivities as a 21st century Western post-enlightenment American living in the northern hemisphere, why should that trump all, all other cultural sensibilities? See, if the Bible really was, think about this, almost a thought experiment. If the Bible really was, let's assume for a second that it really was the revelation from God. Meaning it's not merely the product of a culture. It came through a culture, it came through a culture but it's really from God. It's kind of above all cultures. Wouldn't it have to offend every culture at some point or another? It seems like, so it's not evidence that the Bible's not authoritative. If anything, it, it's evidence that the Bible is authoritative, that it is from God. Think about this. Um, if you have great-great-grandchildren, they're, they're going to think probably some of what you believed was stupid. Probably so, right? I mean, it is well. Um, now, if you think back, you think back about certain generations before you, there are certain things that, that, that you're probably embarrassed that your parents, maybe your grandparents, maybe your great-great-grandparents, you're kind of embarrassed about some things that they believed, right? Well, the problem is we don't know which things are going to be laughed at in 50 years, right? Otherwise, you know, we'd probably change them. But here's the thing. What, what if you missed out on a relationship with God because you threw the Bible away? Because one of your sensibilities, which is going to be a laughing stock in 50 years, kept you from it. That's at least a thought to have there. So here's the point. If, if you let your cultural sensibilities sit in judgment of the Bible... Instead of letting the Bible really assess and critique us in ways, you could be missing out on something absolutely huge. So we can trust the Bible historically, we can trust the Bible culturally, and then lastly, we can trust the Bible personally. Um, it's often said that, that, that people who believe in, in the absolute authority of the Bible, you know, that it's this absolute rule of faith, um, and that I have to submit to in every single way, that will not be conducive to a warm personal relationship with God. It's going to be this legalistic kind of uptight thing. Well, it could be that. But I would suggest that unless you have an absolute authoritative Bible, you'll never have a warm personal intimate relationship with God. But an absolute authoritative Bible is actually the precondition to having a truly personal relationship with God. Um, remember the movie The Stepford Wives? 
Have you seen that? There were a couple different editions of it. Stepford Wives, these men who live in Stepford, Connecticut, decide they're kind of up, upper class and they decide, you know, my wife just is always like crossing my will. and She doesn't agree with me all the time. And so they put these, you know, they make it like a computer robot version of their wife and, you know, a little computer chip. And, and all of a sudden things are wonderful with the Stepford husbands. They're like, this is great, man. Life is awesome. You know, there's no disagreements. There's no arguing. You know, the wife is wonderful and she never crosses their will. The question is, is that relationship more personal and more intimate or less personal and less intimate? See, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends you, offends your sensibilities? When will God ever cross your will? See, what you'll find out is you'll have a God who, who will never disagree with you, never offend you, never bother you, never cross your will, and you'll have a step for God. <laughs> your God, at the end of the day, will look a lot like you. In fact, it'll just be a reflection of your cultural sensibilities, your desires, your personality, predilections, that sort of thing. Your God will simply resemble you, but your God will never be able to really teach you. He'll never be able to cross your will in any way. So an authoritative Bible, it's, it's not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It has to be there for you to have a truly personal relationship with God. Notice, notice what the disciples say when they reflect upon being with Jesus. In verse 25, remember Jesus like rebukes him. He goes, you're how foolish. You're an idiot. You're not reading the Bible correctly. And then he says, starting with Moses and the prophets, he gave them the absolute authoritative interpretation of the scriptures. And look what they said in verse 32. This is the response as they were thinking back to being confronted with an absolute authoritative version, interpretation of scripture. They said, were not our hearts burning within us when he, on, on the road, when he opened the scriptures to us? Um, Greek scholars will tell you this, this phrase burning or to burn is elsewhere is expressed to uh, used to express an uncontrollable longing or desire for something or someone. See, they felt love like they had never felt before, a desire for Christ. When? When he opened up the authoritative absolute scriptures to them. When they finally understood that this map is accurate to life, to reality, to future, to the world. And here's the key. I would suggest... That the, the biggest reason why they misunderstood God and life and meaning and what he's doing, and the biggest reason why we under, misunderstand our journey with the, in faith is verse 27. Is because we have not understood verse 27. To the degree that we haven't, we misunderstand, we, we, we mess up. Some of you have struggled maybe with Christianity for a long time. You've tried, you said, I've tried to obey the rules. I've tried to do this. And it just, it just doesn't seem to be working for me. I'd hoped it was true. That's what they said. We had hoped Jesus was true. You say, I hope Christianity was, I hope this whole religion thing was right. But I just, I just don't think it is. It's because we don't understand verse 27. He said to them, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe. All the prophets had spoken. Verse 26, did not Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Verse 27. And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning what? It's the most important word tonight. Himself. He says, it's all about me. Everything's about me. See, if you think the Bible is all about you, what you must do, 
what you have to obey in order to get the blessing of God, it'll crush you. It'll absolutely crush you. And later, so I tried it. It just, it just didn't work. Or if you read the Bible the way Jesus says, you must read the Bible, that it's all about him and what he has done for you. If there's, if there's any sermon that I ever could like, go back and wish I could hear, it's this. I wish I could have heard what Jesus said. He said, starting with Moses, that, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, number, and all through the prophets, he explained how everything was about him. Starting with Moses. See, God came to Moses and said, you all deserve to die. This is in the Exodus. Because of your sins, but slay a lamb. Put the blood on the doorpost. Take, take shelter under the blood of the lamb. And when the angel of death comes, you won't be paying for your sins. See, you can read Exodus chapter 12 and the Exodus and, and them going as though it's all about you. And you'll say, okay, we've got to get this right. Got to be faithful. Got to be a good leader. And then, you know, God will put me in position. You know, I've got to do this, so I can do that. But what Jesus says to the Emmaus disciples, do you really think that God put your sin away just because of a, a sweet little woolly animal? So he says, I'm the lamb. I'm the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm God come in human flesh, become human to absorb your sin. Or the rock of Moses, remember the rock, he, he, he smites the, the rock with his staff and water comes out. Jesus is the rock. That was smitten by the rod of God's justice so that we could have streams of living water in our own life. Jesus was the tabernacle. Jesus was the temple. Jesus was the bread. Jesus was the light. Jesus was the table. Jesus was the prophet. Jesus was the priest. Jesus was the king. It's all about him. Everything's about him. If you read scripture that way, it's totally different. But, of course, we live in Western culture where you're sort of a narcissist. It's all about me. It's my cultural moment. No, it's about what he has done for you. It's all about him. And that's why the, on that great Passover feast, Jesus says that very thing. He picks up bread and he says, this is me. And he picks up a cup. and He says, this is me. Everything was about me. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward every Wednesday night. We take communion. And tonight it reminds us this idea that literally everything in Scripture pointed to Jesus. It's all about him. And so when we take this, I want us to turn our attentions and our mind to this idea that everything. It's about him for us, but about him. So if, if, if you have started this journey with Christ, or maybe, maybe you want to start it, this might be a good first act. Take these elements, hold them, and then we'll, we'll come back together. And I want us to take it together as a community focusing on him.